So open your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to read the first verse and get into the context of why we're here. But we're going to, we're going to step into John's personality a little bit. I've avoided him the past couple of weeks just to give us a little flavor and get used to his personality. We'll uh, bring out and highlight a little bit of that this morning. But this is one of my favorite passages in the Word. Um, I say that about everything because wherever you find yourself in God's Word, you find the Lord speaking to you, transforming you, exposing himself exposing your, you, know, you to yourself so that we can be self-aware, just continue to grow and mature in our relationship with him. But this is truly one of my favorite letters. We have some of my favorite verses that I preach to myself almost every single day in the couple of chapters that we're going to read this morning. So without further ado, let's read the first verse. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And that's what I've titled this morning's message, and it's probably going to take us, I keep saying, saying two weeks, but it'll probably take us three weeks to get through First John. Um, but we'll just keep this phrase, the word of life, before us. Now, as we try and sit in John's personality a little bit, I want to contrast others first before we really look at John. So if you sit in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? You have these four communications, these four writings about their testimony and their witness about the good news, about who Jesus Christ is. You sit with Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. So best analogy for today would be an IRS agent. So if you're an IRS agent today, your personality is going to revolve around rules. There's laws when it comes to the IRS, but the IRS doesn't just sit in the laws uh, that the legislature has passed. They have to sit in the interpretation of that information. So when you really sit in Matthew's personality, you see his IRS agent kind of mind saying, here's what the law says. Here's what the Old Testament declared about who Jesus is and who the Messiah was going to be. And then he sits in that interpretation over and over again saying, this is how these words of the Old Testament were applied in the life of Jesus. And you watch that as you travel through Matthew. When you sit in Mark's personality, we believe that through church history that Mark's gospel is Peter's account. And when we sit with Peter in all the gospels, what, is he, what kind of guy is he? Really fast, like quick to speak, slow to think kind of guy, right? We can all kind of recognize that. But there's like a bunch of jabs. He's just really fast, really quick punches. It's really fast-paced. And we see that personality of Peter come out in the Gospel of Mark. And we also watch his personality transform over time through the book of Acts, which is what we're really studying verse by verse. But when you read Peter's letters to the church, Peter's writing sometime in the early 60s, persecution is rising up against Jews and the Christians. Christians are being persecuted. They're losing their life for their faith in who Jesus Christ is. Peter pours out this message of hope to those who are in the midst of suffering. And you watch him as a shepherd wanting to guard people's hearts from false teachers, from false teaching. And you watch Peter's personality come out in that. Luke, as we're sitting, we're going through the book of Acts right now, but Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts, and he's written it to this guy named Theophilus. But you watch Luke, it's Dr. Luke. 
So you watch Luke. He's the he's kind of guy that wants to cut you open, and he wants to examine all of your insides and figure out how everything works. He's an investigator. So you watch him in his personality as he's investigated who Jesus Christ was. As he's gone and had conversation with other people, getting their eyewitness testimonies, telling Theophilus, I have a perfect understanding from beginning to end of who Jesus is and what it is that he did. And we watch as we're going through, uh, as we've gone through Luke, we're going through Acts right now. Um, we watch that personality come out. Now, John, when you sit in John's gospel, it's, it's totally different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down a little bit, and he says, the Word became flesh. Now, why doesn't John just say, Jesus was in the beginning, Jesus was with God, Jesus was God, Jesus became a human being? Why doesn't he say that? Same reason that he says here, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, that. He's talking about Jesus, which was from the beginning. We have heard Jesus. We have seen Jesus with our own eyes. We have looked upon him, gazed on him, examined him. We have, our hands have handled him and touched him, he says, concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. But you have John is writing towards this letter we believe is roughly 85 AD. So you're sitting roughly 55 plus years after Jesus ascended to heaven. You're sitting roughly 50 years after John's brother James was executed. You're sitting roughly 20 years after the Apostle Paul and Peter were both executed. He is probably the last one of the last physical eyewitnesses of Jesus in the flesh. And here he is. He needs to, he's writing to a culture, so he's writing to the province of Asia, which is where Ephesus lies. And he's communicating who Jesus is to people who have never seen Jesus, heard Jesus, or touched Jesus. So what kind of language would you use? Like John, John sits, he clearly sits more on the philosophical terms of the day. So when he's using, he uses a lot of imagery. And I'm bringing all this up because we've already seen him use some uh, illustrative language in 2nd and 3rd John. He's going to use a lot of illustrative language here. As we step into Revelation, image after image after image after image. And it's not to be confusing, but he's using imagery. And the Word of God uses imagery that every single culture and time can know who their God is. So the whole thing John is communicating, I am an eyewitness of God in the flesh. And I heard him, and I saw him, I hugged him, I kissed his cheeks, I ate meals with him, I watched him heal, I listened to him teach, I saw his compassion, I saw his rebukes, I saw him on the cross, and I saw the empty tomb. I saw him resurrected. I watched him ascend. I was there the day that the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in humanity. That's the testimony that we're listening to. I have never seen Jesus. I have never heard him. 
I have never touched him in these physical words, but I can sit in the word pictures because I have heard my God speak to me. He speaks to me every day. I see him every day. We're going to end in these first few verses of chapter 3. I am longing for the day to see him. This is why I'm jealous of Isaiah. And again, it's a godly jealousy. It's not a, I want to tear him down, but I want that. Do you not want to see Jesus in all of his glory that John had on that day in Patmos when Jesus revealed himself and unveiled himself? What's it going to be like? So this is what John is communicating. He's in his late 70s, in his early 80s. He's one of the last eyewitnesses alive. And he's writing to a culture that have never seen the word of life. And Jesus is the word of life. The life, verse 2, was manifested, was revealed. And we have seen and bear witness and declare, we announce to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Why? That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship. This idea of fellowship, it's, it's participating in each other's lives. That you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. A couple weeks ago, it's, it's that prayer that we pray often at the end of, or in the middle of Ephesians, but that idea that Paul is praying for the church, we pray for one another, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And ask that question, you know, just to sit in meditation of that. What does that mean? And some of the definition comes from this exact same idea. John's desire, he, the reason he is writing to the church is so that their joy would be full, that they would be filled with rejoicing and hope, encouragement in who Jesus Christ is. And not just that our fellowship is with God, that, we, that he has given to us his life through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, but that as we all bend the knee to Jesus together, we are participating in his life together and in our lives together. That this would be a true association, true communion, true community, sharing in each other's lives. But that is what? It's messy because we're all distinct personalities. Every single one of us messes up. And that's what he starts getting into is he's communicating, I want you to know and see and hear and touch and feel Jesus. I want you to have a full relationship with him, and I want you to have a full relationship with one another. Now, the rest of this letter, he's encouraging that behavior. So we start stepping into, here's the message. Verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him. We've heard this from Jesus, and we're declaring it to you, that what? God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So remember, he's, he's using words of imagery 
to convey that which he has seen to those who haven't seen him. And this whole idea that God is light. We sit in the imagery of light. When you turn on a, a light switch today, what happens to the dark room? The darkness flees away when the light gets turned on. In him is no darkness at all. There's no sin. There's no evil. There's no darkness in God, for God is light. And really, through, through the end of chapter 3, all of the subject matter keeps cycling around this idea that God is light. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and we walk in darkness. The, the idea is that the, the theme, the road, the path of our life is in darkness. If we say that I know Jesus, I have fellowship with Jesus, and walk in darkness, the truth is what? We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, again, this isn't, it's not just words. If we walk in God, if we walk in a relationship with him, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The message, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood, life is in the blood. His sacrifice, his death for us. What Jesus was doing on the cross was allowing, submitting himself to become sin, to have the sin of the whole world placed upon him, to die the death that we all deserve. And through his blood being shed, through that death, this is what cleanses us. As we look to him in faith, as we repent, as we confess, all these ideas are going to keep coming up. This is what it is that the word of life, Jesus, the Christ, God the Father's Son, has done for us. He's cleansed us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. We lead ourselves astray. And the truth is not in us. Because the reality is all of us have sin. This, it's, a, it's a noun. Not the action of sin. This is the product of being born as a human being. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, death entered in. All of us have sin. If we say that we don't have sin, we lie to ourselves. The truth is not in us. And here's one of the favorite verses in all the word of God. If we confess our sins, and the word confession means say the same thing that God says. If God says that this is a sin... God says that you are a sinner apart from Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. This is justice. To forgive us, and literally, he's letting go of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have all this imagery in the word in regards to putting off the old, putting off sin, putting off what is impure and being clothed in Christ. 
his purity, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, his light. If we say that we have not sinned, the verb, the actions, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. One of the reasons I love John is he's, he's just so direct. He's not shaking his fist in anybody's face. He's just declaring what is true. If you have fellowship with God, you're going to walk in the light. You're going to be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. You confess your sins. He cleanses. If we stand in opposition to what I just said, then we're saying that God is a liar because we're not in agreement with him. But he is the one who is true, and we're supposed to submit ourselves to his truth. John, my little children, this aged man, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So that you'll have the power to be victorious in life. And if anyone sins, guess what? We have an advocate. This word for advocate, it's the same word in John 13, 14, 15, 16. That whole section in the Gospel of John where talking about the Holy Spirit as another helper. It's the exact same word. He comes alongside of us when we sin. And he is our advocate. He is there to help us. To cleanse us to keep us in right relationship with the Father, with the God who is holy and pure. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And it's a fancy word for he is the one who has, um, he is the substitutionary sacrifice. He is the one who has appeased the wrath of God. Ultimately, he is the sacrifice for our sins and our advocate, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And hold on to that word, world. Come back to it in a minute. Verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. Do you want to know that you know God? Here's the definition. We know that we know Jesus if we keep his commandments. And if commandments is a naughty word for you, if it's a dirty word, if it just brings up legalistic kind of behavior to you, then shift the word, replace the word in the sense of you know that you know him if you do what Jesus said. And again, when you sit in the Gospels, does your heart not just leap with, yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to live that way. Amber read through all the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I want to be poor in spirit, Lord. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually dead apart from you. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't want to hunger and thirst for the things of the world. I know that I know you through loving you, through keeping, guarding, acting upon those things that you've directed me to do, not to be uh, not to bring about uh, my own salvation, 
but just to respond to your incredible love for me. Verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Pretty direct. But whoever keeps his word, truly, I love this, the love of God is perfected in him. Jesus, you are the word of life. There is no separation between you and your words. I want to keep you. I want to keep those things that you've said because it's through those things that you've said that I know you, that I can see you and hear you and touch you. Lord, give us the power to keep your word. Because that's truly the position where your love is perfected in me. By this, we know that we're in him. He who says he abides remains in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Talked about that last week, imitating Jesus. He is truth. He is the one that we're seeking to follow. Not a church, not a man, not a teaching, nothing else. We are following Jesus. This is the definition of a disciple, of a learner. Verse 7, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John, why don't you just say it straight up? Well, um, because he's using all these word pictures. Jesus has been there from the beginning. His commandments have been consistent from the beginning. There is no new commandment. They're all old. Yet, it's new and fresh today. The darkness, sin, all that is in opposition to God, it is passing away. And the true light is already appearing in our lives. He who says he is in the light... And again, I mentioned earlier, he's, he's encouraging uh, behavior in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother, detests his brother, disregards his brother, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides, remains in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But... He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Imagery that all of us can sit in and understand. I write to you, little children. And again, as we, as we sit in this section, uh, uh, there is... A discussion, he's, he's conveying age, physical age. He's also conveying age in um, spiritual age, in your maturity and your relationship with God. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Already a truth. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. So whose name's sake? Jesus' name's sake. 
Very first verse, he says, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus. So here, you have known him who is from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome, you have conquered, you have prevailed, you have defeated the evil one, the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. So here there's a repetition, and he's also now talking about God the Father. To the little children, you have known the Father. Now I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. The immediate context would be, now he's talking about God the Father. You've known him from the beginning, God the Father, God the Son. I have written to you, young men, because you were strong, you were mighty and powerful, and the Lord of God, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. This is the first imperative of this letter, which is a direct command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So earlier I told you to hold on to the word world. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Everybody knows John three seventeen. For God so loved the what? The world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not what? Will not perish, will not abide in darkness, but will have eternal life. John is declaring to us the word of life, that eternal life. So how is it that God loves the whole world And here John is telling us not to love the world. It's hard. How do you you love a human being who stands in direct opposition to you, who stands in opposition to God, who Jesus is? How do you love that person and at the same time hate what they stand for? hate what they communicate. It's hard. Did, was God in agreement with the world as Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins of the entire world? Sit in Psalm 22 sometime. Get Jesus' perspective as he's on the cross. God hates sin. It's not of him. He has wrath towards it and judgment towards it. Yet when he talks about human beings, every single human being, he has a passionate love for. And he has done exactly what it takes to remove that sin and that darkness from every single human soul. But it requires that individual, each individual, to respond and to receive and to take him in, right? 
So when we're told as believers, we are told that we need to love humanity just the way that God loves people. He is the one that we are pointing everybody to. There is no sin that is greater than another to keep somebody out of his light and his eternal life for all eternity. Now, sit in, sit in the reality of this comment, and I'm looking at the clock right now. This is as far as we're getting this morning. Um, so sit in this idea. A lot of you are married in the room. Every single one of you has a friend, has had a friend. So in a marriage, if your spouse cheated on you, and maybe your spouse has cheated on you, and there's been a reconciliation and forgiveness, there's, there's a damage that occurs, and there's a scar that remains. There's a memory of that. It takes a long time to rebuild trust. The word uses that relationship between a husband and wife to describe to us the relationship that we have with God. Uses parent-child, uses uh, slave-master, uses human relationships to help us understand who it is that he is and who we are to him. You can sit in the imagery of close friends. If any of you have ever felt like you've been stabbed in the back by another human being, somebody betrayed you. The reality of the image in our relationship with God, we have knifed Jesus in the back so many times we can't even see his back anymore, and all that we can see is the hilt of daggers. We have committed adultery against our God in countless ways of idolatry as we abandon our relationship with him to go and search to be satisfied in other relationships. Now, when God says, I love the world and that I have given to you my son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice to appease the wrath that I have towards your sin, your heart, your behavior, I love you. And I will do anything to get you away from all of those competing things and to have all of you. Now, the forgiveness that we have in God is this. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness, from all of that sin, from all of that impurity, from all of that darkness in a way that when he looks to us as a spouse, he has no remembrance of the adultery. It's gone. When it says that we are forgiven, he has let go of it. He has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. They never touch each other. He has cast it into the depth of the ocean, never to be dredged up again. All of the ways that you have betrayed him as your friend. Through that death on the cross, every single one of those daggers, it's not there. There's not a scar. There's no remembrance of any of those actions, those words. 
those thoughts, that filth that has come between us and him. This is, this is the declaration of the God. This is the declaration of the message of the word of life. This is who God is. This is what it is that he's done. This is how he sees us. He loves us. When we step into that relationship with him in faith and trust and hope, the encouragement is always to stay on that straight and narrow path, loving him, abiding in him, trusting in him, listening to him, seeing him, smelling, just always. It's all about Jesus all the time. That's what he wants for us. All of us drift. John knows that we drift, so he's writing not because the church doesn't know what he's communicating, but just to remind them and encourage them. Worship team, come on up. I really wanted to get to those first few verses of chapter 3, but we'll get to it next week. But as we press into worship and communion, it begins with, Behold, I want you to see and it's this declaration, behold, see what manner, the kind, the sort of love that God has for you and for me. That we should be declared, adopted. That you and I should be declared, called the children of God. And he goes on. And he says, it has not been revealed to us yet what we will be. That day when we stand before him. He says that in that day we are going to be like him because we will see him as he is. Right now we're children through adoption, through faith in Jesus Christ. We are declared children of God. And that, that, that title is an expression of God's love for each one of us. But there is coming a day. We don't know what we're going to be for all eternity. But there's coming a day when we're going to stand face to face with the being who created us. And we're going to be just like him reflecting his perfect image as he created us to reflect in the first place. This is what it is that he has done. This is what it is that he has proclaimed to us. This is what it is that we believe. And this is what it is that we hope in. And you and I, as we hope that there's coming a day of that revelation, of that reality, that that has its purifying and cleansing effect in our minds and our souls and our bodies and our words and our actions as we attend to him every day. Receive our worship, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.